Hello everybody, I hope that you're all doing well. Another week, another set of scary stories I curated for you. I hope that you'll enjoy them. Let's get into it as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I'm a scientist sent to a government-owned island to study new life forms. I found something truly sinister. Written by Colt Leisure. I never thought that I would uncover the horrifying reality I did. I am aware of how by releasing this document, I am likely to be in trouble with my higher-ups. There are powerful people who have the means to destroy my reputation. They could end my life and make it look like an accident or an unsolved homicide. I don't care. Let them come after me. I have to get this information out to the public. I owe it to humanity. My exact title was Physical Oceanography Scientist. My station was at NASA headquarters for most of my career. My job duties consisted of reading information gathered from satellites. I also helped map the ocean and check everything from sea levels to salinity. I became familiar with eyes glazing over when I described aspects of my way of making a living to friends. Still, every so often I would go out on a research vessel called the Pulver. Many in my profession would have been content in a room with stacks of photographs taken from space. I wanted to be out in the field. I volunteered to go wherever they asked. I was still young, unmarried, and childless. Traveling was a welcomed privilege of the job. I did not expect to go to an unnamed island that my colleagues had referred to as Death's Acreage. I could not predict what I would see next. My boss called me into his office. His name was Robert Barr. His professional dwelling was a clean area with a marble white desk. The entirety of the chamber was nothing but glass with NASA logos. On that particular day, something seemed off about his demeanor. I would soon find out what was bothering him. Would you be open to going to an island in the middle of the Pacific? I made eye contact with him and observed how he looked tense. His skin was paler than usual. I guessed that he hadn't slept the night before. He was twitchy. Of course, I said. I've always told you that I'll go anywhere you need me. Don't tell me what you think that I want to hear, he said as he slammed his hand down on the desk. Workers walking by in the hallway peered inside after they heard this sudden outburst. I leaned back in my seat when the noise of his palm hitting the surface reverberated throughout the room. This is serious, he said as he wiped sweat off of his brow. This is not for NASA alone. It involves parts of the government that we usually do not collaborate with. Homeland Security to name one. This is not going to be within your comfort zone. You will receive a challenge with this one. 
If you come back with a positive mental attitude still intact, there will be a promotion. It's a huge pay bump and it will secure your future here in a way that no other assignment can. Is it still on the pulver? I asked. Yes, he said. May I ask what this entails if it's outside of my typical task? You will know on arrival, but let me give you a few details. You will identify forms of sea life. You will study specific life forms found in and around this particular island. The bit of land in that archipelago has been completely guarded by the US military ever since the Cold War. You may not know this, but people in your position studied the dying phytoplankton. At the time, the paranoia towards these Soviets was so high. They theorized the Russians may have been killing sea life. Has anybody ever told you that before? No, I said. I did not know why he decided to share that with me at the time, though I learned later on what he was inferring a warning. It was indirect, but I should have caught on still. A long pause settled between us. There will be a non-disclosure agreement that you will have to sign, he said. You must not tell anyone about anything that you are about to see when you get there. This is true whether it is mundane or from another world. His wording struck me as odd. I should have seen the red flags in that moment. I had an inward speculation on how he was in a caustic mood, with possible problems at home. It was well known at headquarters that he was going through a divorce. So, he said, are you in? Again, yes. We shook hands and I signed the necessary paperwork. It was the greatest mistake of my life. Pulver was 270 feet long and 50 feet wide. It had four decks. The interior had state-of-the-art computer systems and navigational equipment. The day that I walked onto it, I saw two other crew members. One was the captain. He was an experienced seafarer who I knew had an extensive and impressive background in the Navy. His name was Hugh Rockwell. The second was a man whom I had met several times, Teddy Strickland. He smiled and tried to give me a friendly pat on the arm, but I did not reciprocate the warmth. Fact of the matter is, Strickland was well known in the community, but not in a positive way. He is a pseudoscientist. He believed in New Age concepts. This guaranteed him spotlight on the History Channel. There were more outlandish documentary stoners loved to watch had him in their credits. He was not known as a reliable source of innovation within our field. Strickland only maintained validity through being a sort of a one-hit wonder. He had built a specific device which helped with particle sampling. This invention was a great aid at the time to many of us. But I could not understand why they would pair me with him. It angered me. I forced a smile and tried to remind myself that I didn't have to work too close with him. I could do my own thing at the other end of the boat. I would lock myself away in my cabin and still be useful without his interference. 
As soon as we were out to sea, I walked onto one of the docks and rested my elbows on the railing. The shimmering luminescence of the water as the lowering sun left me awestruck. The lapping tides reminded me why I chose to make this my life's labor. You could have become a fisherman if you wanted to stare at the ocean all day, Strickland said. He had a wide grin and he elbowed me in the side. We had not even been away from the deck for more than an hour, and I had fantasized about throwing him overboard. I yearned to watch him drown as I pointed and laughed at his isolated and slow demise. Come on inside, he said as he pointed towards the center cabin. There's a few pictures that I have to show you. They wanted me to. I went into the space with reluctance. Rusted and rotted compasses lined the countertops. Situated on a table sat a stack of papers. Upon closer inspection, I saw that they were black and white aerial photographs. What about this one strikes you as bizarre? When I held it up to the light, I saw the anomaly that he had referenced. It was a picture of a shallow part of the ocean near the island. Yet there was something beneath the water, near the shoreline. It was in the shape of a face. It had jagged teeth and eyes which were triangular shaped. Isn't that weird? Strickland asked. So it's some kind of demonic entity, I said. Hippies have cloud spotting where they see all kinds of different things. Some individuals see a million different items in the same Rorschach test. It doesn't mean anything without a trained psychologist to tell us about our psyches. Sure, Strickland said. I did not tell you what I saw though. It's the exact same thing. It was four long days of twiddling our thumbs and awaiting the arrival at our destination. The air grew colder, whereas I expected humidity based on the region that we were in. This baffled me. Still, I did not want to get lost in the muck of speculation on weather patterns in the age of global warming. The island came into sight. Its crescent shape was visible. Its many rosewood and wild lime trees dotted the landscape. It was comforting to see land again, even if I knew the elements would kill almost anyone if left unaided on it for long. And then I looked down. There were copious amounts of yellowish algae. I had never seen kelp tinged with such a golden hue before. It had an unhealthy and almost radioactive appearance. I saw a large reef fish swim into the labyrinth of scum. What I saw next left me breathless. The yellow algae had come to life and wrapped itself around the fish. It was like the algae had a consciousness and it was some kind of being with sharp tentacles. The fish transformed into a cloud of red. The smell hit immediately. A wafting of putrid viscera came towards me mixed with the brine. I pinched my nostrils and felt as though if I was going to throw up. Strickland came out perplexed and he looked at me. What's wrong? Strickland asked. Nothing, I said. I refrained from telling him the truth. 
Strickland believed in extraterrestrials seeding our oceans with cosmic foreign technology. Still, he would label me a crackpot if I were to tell him seaweed was becoming sentient. The incident bothered me the rest of the night and I did not sleep at all. I crawled out of bed the next morning, exhausted. I pulled back the blinds over my window and stared straight out at the island. Something about the way the trees swayed in the wind seemed to beckon me. I had a longing to be on its beaches, if only to walk on soil again. As I peered out at the coastal stretch, I saw Rockwell. He had appeared from the jungle, and he had a semi-automatic rifle strapped to his back. He held a canteen and a wooden block. I reasoned that it was a club or some kind of weapon. He got into the light blue kayak and met his way back to the pulver. Once he was aboard, I went up to meet him after I had grabbed a cup of instant coffee. Glance over the railing and tell me if you noticed anything about the bottom of the vessel, Rockwell said. I did as he instructed and noticed how the yellow algae was starting to swarm upwards. It was as though it was trying to cover our home on the ocean in its web-like texture. It seemed to only do so when we were asleep or preoccupied. I'll have Strickland take a piece of it and see what we can find out about how it spreads, I said. Well, you should wake him up now then. So, we're allowed to go out there, I asked as I pointed to the sandy and verdant scenery. And Barr told me to let you know that it's ill-advised, he said. They trust me to go out there because they know how to handle myself. Somebody who's looking through a microscope all day may not. No offense. Hey, I need you to analyze something that I've collected. He set the chunk of wood down. I observed that there was a lettering carved into it, but it was not done in a sloppy way. It was woodwork created by an artist's hand. The back had ornate and elaborate symbolic designs. They were almost tribal but far from familiar. The single word in the front was in English or Spanish. I had never read it before. Still, it echoed something in the lexicon that I may have stumbled upon decades before. In all capital letters, it read, Carcosa. Outlining the top and bottom of the word were purple and blue crystals stuck in the wood. They shimmered in the light of the rising sun. And that was when we heard the scream. It was a shriek and I had recognized it as Strickland's voice. We rushed downstairs. Rockwell kicked on the door after we had found it locked. What I saw next will live on in my memories forever. He was in his death throes. Strickland was still on his bed. He was on his back. Yellow tendrils of the algae had wrapped around him like robe. Despite the visceral terror that I felt, my constant use of deductive logic made me analyze the scene. I tried to figure out where the algae had invaded his cabin. When I looked north of the room, and saw how the living mass had crawled through a shattered part of his window. Parts of the kelp had pierced through his abdominal section. The algae which had dismembered his center had a talon-like end. The sharp protuberances of its head formed mouth. Pustules, scabs, lesions, and vicious infected cuts littered his body. Retreat, 
Rockwell said after he had pointed to the ground. The algae came towards us. Rockwell unstrapped his rifle and aimed, and he fired. When I saw the projectiles, I realized that they were actually rubber pellets. Each time one of them hit the creeping plankton, it seemed to mutate and contort to get out of the way. Still, though, it moved in our direction. I kept backing up. When my shoulder hit the wall, I noticed a large, slithering chunk of the algae above my head. To the kayak, Rockwell said to me as he shoved me down the corridor and back onto the main deck. He whipped around and continued firing as he took steps in reverse. He screamed the entire time. He stopped his war cry only when he had reloaded. Once we were in the canoe, he handed me the paddle and told me to get us inland like our life had depended on it. I did and we managed to reach the shoreline within a matter of minutes. Rockwell had an emergency phone which he used to call headquarters. It was three hours before an emergency helicopter came and picked us up. I watched as the pulver sank into the depths. Once I got back home, I took a long shower and popped a few sleeping pills. I slept for two days straight. After, I went back to work and I walked into Barr's office. I told him that I wanted no part of the research project anymore. You'll suffer a demotion, Barr said with a growl. Well, I'll take it, I said. Over the following three days, my career took a harder hit than what Barr had even prophesied. I left the company altogether. They did offer me what they described as a lateral transfer. In reality, it was a pen-pushing job in Ohio which involved organizing Excel spreadsheets. I declined. To this day, I have no idea what actually murdered Strickland. I don't know what that thing was or how to classify it. My mind had made several educated guesses. I have thought about everything from a bioweapon to a new strain of bacteria. It could have been a phenomena deep beneath the aquatic firmaments. I hope that it never travels beyond death's acreage. I work at Broadcast Station 104.6 FM. Something isn't right here. Written by Wendingas. From down here, you can't see anything. You see, the nice thing about being perched in a watchtower 50 feet up in the air was that we could see the wide, open world of trees and mountain peaks that surrounded the village of Pinehaven. As its protectors, that was kind of important. But now that the tower is gone, we're confined to a pathetic little hut, no bigger than a shed and settled on the ground. It feels like we're all living in a sardine can, and the snowstorms coming from the mountain are like big shoes kicking us around. The sounds of construction were giving me a headache. I was plagued by constant fears that the portable outhouse that we all shared would tip over with a gust of wind. But worst of all, it was a week after Christmas and Daniel was still singing carols. Hey, this is Operator Evelyn, codename, 28th from the Pinehaven Emergency Broadcast Station. This is a busy time for us, but I wanted to take a few minutes to tell the story of how New Year's Eve went absolutely bananas. It began the way a lot of things do around here. 
Early in the morning when I arrived at work with a big yawn and an even bigger travel mug of too strong coffee, I traded places with Finn, who gave me a crisp high five on his way out of the door. I've been trying to get him to move on to finger guns, but I don't think we're quite there yet. While he was heading back to the old homestead to get some well-deserved sleep, I was making sure that our morning music lineup was set for the next hour. Finn had it perfectly organized onto the second. As per usual, pre-recorded ads already slid into place. He had even cleaned all the discount post-Christmas candy wrappers off my side of the desk. I spent the next few hours settling in, giving the morning weather forecast, and practicing saying, Happy New Year in sign language. I should have known that it was about to be a weird day as soon as I saw the sunrise come up over the horizon. It was more purple than usual. The rich color of the sky remained late into the morning, surrounded by long, tendril-shaped flares like a second sun. What do they call it? Uncanny valley, I think. When something is just off enough to catch your attention, but not so strange that it looks impossible. I regarded the sunrise with a squint of suspicion, waiting for it to fade into the bright blue winter sky. It did in time. And then at 10 o'clock in the morning, the door came bursting open and a cold wind rattled the thin plywood walls. It was my worst nightmare in human form, here to haunt me yet again. Feliz Ano Nuevo, you little creep. And Daniel said energetically, pushing the door closed with his shoulder. He was still on crutches, his broken leg in a big white cast. It was covered in little sharpie drawings, most of them from me. It looked like his siblings had added a few during the Esperanza Christmas party this year. My personal favorite was a doodle of Bartholomew the Bird holding a knife. I raised my eyebrows at him over the lid of my coffee cup. I don't speak French, I teased. Dan hopped over to the desk and flopped into his usual chair, leaning his crutches up against the edge of the table. Okay, smarty. He kicked my chair with his good leg, causing me to roll a few inches to the side. I take it back then. I hope you have a terrible new year. I hope you eat a whole bag of wieners. Oh, delicious, my favorite. I rolled back into place again, curling one leg underneath me and getting comfortable. Happy New Year to you too. So, how'd you sleep last night, Danny boy? He was fixing his curls which had been tossed around in the high winds. He picked up a clipboard and spun slowly on his wheels, reading over the day's notes. We had a raffle going on that he was extremely excited about. I slept great, he said, pointing to his chin. What at first looked like a scab from a bad shave turned out to be Rugburn instead. And the nice thing about sleepwalking with a broken leg, you don't get very far. I cringed, squinting my one eye to look at the nasty mark. Ooh, ouch. Hey, better than getting lost in the woods though, right? Or jumping into mysterious holes. It was one singular mysterious hole and I didn't jump. I attempted a graceful swan dive before you interrupted. Yeah, okay. I snorted, getting out of my seat. I turned to the little coffee maker that we had plugged in beyond the desk, filled with a distilled water from jogs. It was sitting on a rickety old chair that we had found in the shed, 
Sincere apologies, a connoisseur of strange holes. I didn't mean to offend. Do you want some coffee while I'm back here? Danthro crumpled a piece of paper at the back of my head. He was in a rare form today. No thanks, darling, I'm good. I'm off my butt on monster energy. I heard the distinct pop of a can top. I snickered, tossing the paper wide in the trash. That explains everything. While you get settled in, you want to do the raffle announcement? After, come fly with me. I didn't pre-record it because I thought you would want to do the honors. Oh, you do love me. Dan gave a huge, gab-toothed grin while he adjusted his hearing aid, making sure that it was secure before putting his headphones over top. As I pretended to gag on his cutesy BS, he started to loudly sing along with the radio, just as I had feared he would. I knew setup sucks enormous hairy butt, but if I'm being honest, it was built in an afternoon out of plywood and spare pieces from an old barn, each plank a different shade of peeling paint. There's no plumbing, no heat, and if you want to keep something refrigerated, you just stick it outside in the snow by the door. The plexiglass window out front isn't much of a lookout either. All we can see is snow in the tree line, which is far darker and more foreboding from this angle than it ever was up in the air. We're packed into a space just barely large enough for all of our equipment. The old tower wasn't very big, sure, but at least Daniel and I could sit side by side without constantly attacking one another with our elbows. As I refilled my travel mug, I could hear my co-host crooning into his microphone. It's 10 o'clock on a beautiful Saturday morning and my partner and I just want to wish everybody down in Pinehaven a fantastic New Year's Eve. For tonight and tonight only, we'll be giving away a special prize to one lucky winner. To enter the raffle, call and tell us your New Year's resolution. And we'll draw the name at midnight for a $50 gift card to the Pottery Barn. I stifled a snort of laughter. Pinehaven was still rebuilding after the disaster that had happened before Christmas. But there was something so pathetically hopeful about offering compensation in the form of $50 worth of pottery. I briefly wondered what would happen if nobody called us, but I didn't say anything. It would break Dan's squishy little heart. As it turns out though, we actually did get some calls. Bill from Chestnut Avenue wants to eat less red meat. Kendall wants to call her sister more often. Emily said she would go to a gym at Pinehaven had a gym, but she'll settle for her long walks in the evening. Travis said that he wants to start sleeping better at night. Patricia wants to sleep better at night. Jamal wants to sleep better at night. Paige wants to sleep better at night. Anthony wants to sleep better at night. By mid-afternoon, the sky was already starting to grow dark. We could hear the distinct caw of several dozen crows, perched at the tree line where the forest met the clearing. We could hear the rumble of something that sounded like thunder, but we knew that it probably wasn't. All at once, the wind stopped. The trees were completely still. The wispy dark clouds in the sky were as still as a picture. Everything got eerily, horribly silent. I stood at the window, my breath making a warm fog on the plexiglass surface. So, what about you? I heard Dad ask from behind me. What's your resolution this year? 
I thought about it in silence for a moment. I wanted to stop drinking entirely, maybe try therapy. I wanted a will to live, and not just for Pinehaven, but because I was happy. I wanted to figure out what made me happy. I wanted to dance. I wanted to say I love you more often to the people who mattered to me. Uh, to start drinking more water. I lied. What about you? Daniel was silent for a minute before he too had an answer. Uh, maybe I'll write a book. My lip twitched in the tiniest of smiles while I watched the crows gather on the radio tower. The blinking red light at the top was dancing against a pure black sky, while the clock on the wall ticked loudly. I think that's a great idea, Danny boy. It was late by the time that Finn showed up, agreeing to take over for Dan and I. What's with all the crows? He asked the moment that he stepped inside, slamming the door behind him. The thin wall shuddered and the whole place shook. Yeah, they're in town too, thousands of them probably. Maybe it's an omen, Daniel said, wiggling his fingers. Also, happy new year, Finn. Got any resolutions? Yeah, to get all the bird crap off my car. He sighed and sat down, all three of our chairs packed in tightly side by side. He looked tired, dark circles under his eyes and his hair more gray than usual. Sometimes I suspected that Daniel and I were the cause for that, honestly. So, what have I missed? I sat back in my seat, tapping my pen against the edge of the desk. Oh, lots of calls. Daniel's been a popular boy tonight with his little raffle idea. We heard thunder earlier. It wasn't thunder. Finn shook his head. There's another big sinkhole at the edge of the town. You know where the old Christmas tree farm was. I narrowed my eye. Was. Yeah, well, it's in a hole. Finn continued, lighting up a cigarette and shoving the rest of the box in the front pocket of his coat. It looks like a giant ditch now, going straight down into the abandoned mine shaft. Yeah, thankfully no one was hurt. Phil's truck was gone, place was all locked up. He must have left for Christmas. Dang, I frowned warming my hands by sticking them back inside these sleeves of my jacket. I really liked that place when I was a kid too. My dad always let me take the first swing. I thought of those mines opening up outside of town, so close to the road it sent a chill up my spine. I think everybody else felt it too. I remembered the horrible melted screams of that amalgamate beast, its many human torsos all crawling over one another like a centipede. Its hooves stampeding through the trees. I remembered the way that it could crack the pines in half. The Hydra. It was still out there somewhere. Missing pieces but as angry as ever. Sometimes I still saw the earth shift to the tree line. It's quiet in here. Finn said after a long silence. Breathing out a puff of smoke that made the view of our computer monitors hazy. Did the clock stop working? Sure enough, we all looked up at the wall and saw that the circular clock had paused. It was just a few minutes to midnight, and the minute hand had stuck on the number 11 and was twitching in place. The clock on our monitors read the same. You guys see that? I was staring out the window, slowly standing up and pushing my chair away. 
as I stepped towards the plexiglass, which was now beginning to fog up from the body heat stuffed inside this tiny room. I saw that purple light again. This wasn't the light from the forest, the one glowing from within a giant hole in the ground. This one floated above the trees and into the sky, flares of light popping and wiggling around it. The second sun. It grew brighter, large, perhaps closer. I heard a great and powerful drone, loud enough to make my ears hurt. And Daniel took out his hearing aid, the tiny device squealing into the open air as he dropped it on the desk. All at once, we heard a rapid ticking. The clock was moving again, racing as if trying to catch up. Our monitors began to blink. The time on the screen flickered and began to count upwards. 11.59, Minutes that didn't even exist. There was a loud screech from all three of our headsets, volume blaring and seemingly coming from all directions at once. The floor began to shake beneath our feet. The lights flickered on and off, changing colors from red to orange to purple. Of kindness yet. Crows were flying at the window, hitting the plexiglass. The glittering stars flew overhead, as if the hours were speeding by. The purple glow, now drifting closer, grew so bright that it took up the entire view. For the, For the sake of all, Langsine. Everything in the room shut off with a loud buzz. The lights, the computer monitors, the audio console. I heard nothing except our own panicked breathing and the sound of my pulse inside my ears. Finally, there it was again. The clock on the wall began to tick. It was five minutes to midnight again. Daniel was the first one to speak. Okay, Jesus, what the heck was that? I tapped the keyboard on my computer testing to see if the screen would come back on. Nothing happened. I don't know, but I think we lost power. Crap, I'm gonna go get the generator started. I drew my coat closer around my neck, the night's chill sinking in. As I took two small steps towards the door, I reached for the handle and prepared to run out without even looking where I was going. I would be shocked to find that instead of hitting the snowy ground, my boot sank through the air with a plunge that made my heart drop all the way down to my knees. In an instant, I was dangling, holding onto the door handle for dear life. I felt the wind blowing against my legs, the cold air whistling in my ear. I was looking up at the open doorway where Finn was already rushing to the edge to grab my arms. The old worn hinges of the door were starting to protest against my weight. Evelyn, let go! Finn yelled, gripping my arms right below the elbows. Uh, no, I yelped, my voice coming out as a panicked squeak. Screw you. Trust me, let go or you and the door are gonna drop. I looked down. I really shouldn't have looked down. We were floating at least a half mile above the forest, dirt and roots dangling from the bottom of the shed, as if it had been plucked off the ground. Below us, that magenta light coming from that endless pit was shining brightly like a round burst of color, an eye looking up into the stars. I was hyperventilating, my head beginning to spin, the world turning on its side as I grew dizzy and faint. When I looked back up at the door, Finn wasn't there anymore. 
somebody else had taken his place. I saw a thick red beard and tan freckled skin, a yellow and orange fireman's coat. He was holding my elbows tightly, nodding his head with a comforting and reassuring smile. I've got you, Ginger Snap, he said, but you gotta let go. I'm gonna fall. The voice that came out of my mouth wasn't mine. It was tiny, young, and childlike. You ain't gonna fall, darling. Trust your pa, I've got you. I braced myself and teeth clenched. Before I could have a chance to doubt my decision, my hand released the doorknob and I felt my weight shift suddenly and startingly. My eyes squeezed shut as I was pulled upwards, my stomach hitting the edge of the doorway first, before the rest of me had toppled onto something warm and human-shaped. He didn't smell like Dad anymore. He smelled like cigarette smoke and pine. Finn gave me a pat on the back, pushing me by the shoulders to ease me off of him so that he could stand. I clutched my chest, sitting in the middle of the floor and struggling to breathe. And Daniel was out of his chair at this point, sitting on his butt halfway to the door as if he had either fallen or tried to scoot instead of using his crutches. I think I'm having a panic attack, he wheezed. You're always having a panic attack. Finn grabbed Daniel under the arms, pulling him up and putting a crutch under his arm so that he could stand. Lynn, you okay? I looked up at him, my sight still blurry, head still spinning. I blinked and felt a tear rolling down my cheek. Yeah, I'm okay. I sniffed as Finn grabbed my hand and pulled me up, patting my shoulders. So, um, don't go out that door, okay, fellas? I forced a small chuckle. All three of us were looking out the window now, watching the wind push us along as we floated far above the trees and just underneath the clouds. The wooden boards were creaking and whining, like a boat being rocked by the waves. The dingy hanging light above us started to buzz. The bulb crackled back to life. Our computer screens flickered. The radio static was blasting in our headsets. We heard the music again. Should other acquaintance be forgot? A warm, red light filled the sky. Thunder roaring as meteors began to fall from the heavens. It made the sound of whistling fireworks as they fell. We all braced ourselves while the shed began to rock, flames engulfing the trees. And I never brought to mind. The ticking was louder now. 1162, 11.63. We were falling. The building gave one violent roll to the side like an aircraft going out of control. And suddenly we could see the flaming trees below getting closer and closer. The three of us fell into a pile on the floor, Finn grabbing the edge of the desk for dear life. Daniel was squeezing me so hard that it hurt. 11.63. 11.64 The impact never came. It was as if I blinked and everything was normal again. I was standing there looking out the window with the banks of snow and the tree line up ahead. I could see the clock on the wall frozen at 11.50 out of the corner of my eye. I could see the computer screens glowing bright from the corner of my other eye. Okay, now I'm actually having a panic attack. I heard my voice, but I wasn't the one to say it. 
I turned on a dime and saw a short, red-headed figure in a ratty old denim jacket standing behind me. She clapped her hands over her mouth, and then looked at her own freckled fingers and let out a shriek. How was I standing in two places at once? Who are you? I yelled, pointing a finger. It wasn't my voice that came out of my mouth, and it wasn't my hand that was reaching. Dan, I think. The Evelyn imposter sat, holding up her hands. She, or rather he, looked at his new body and patted up and down as making sure he wasn't dreaming. Finn, why am I a white woman? I'm not Finn. Then who? I'm Evelyn and you're me. No, I'm Dan. Holy crap, both of you guys shut up. Dan's voice boomed out with an aggression that I had never heard before. With an uncharacteristic scowl in his face, he stomped across the room with one crutch, thumping on the floor, grabbing his hearing aid and popping it back in. I swear you two each have one half of a brain cell, and you can't figure out how to rub them together. I'm Finn, you're Dan, you're Evelyn. He pointed at each of us in succession. We switched bodies. I looked down at my hands, calloused, rough, dirty around the fingernails. I was inside of Finn's body using his voice. Daniel was inside of mine. Suddenly I was tall and heavy and the back of my throat tickled from the burn of cigarette smoke. The real Finn wearing Dan's physical form but still sporting that severe, intense frown on his face, put a hand on his hips and looked at the clock on the wall. If this is anything like last time... We just have to wait it out for a couple of minutes. Just try not to hyperventilate and pass out. Okay, fine, and this is fine. I took a heavy breath, leaning against the wall. It felt weird to be so big and blocky and square. Hey Finn, your back is killing me. How old are you? In hindsight, it was hilarious to see Dan's face glaring at me with the most serious, no-nonsense expression that I had ever seen. It just wasn't like him to look like he could legitimately kick my butt. Nor was it like him to take control of a situation so effortlessly. I have to admit, I liked him more when he was just a big, dumb goof. Thankfully, the goof was still in the room with us. I don't like this, the Rio Dan said, my voice coming out of his mouth as he hunched over, uncomfortable with the new body that he was stuck in. My condolences. My head is pounding and I'm freezing and I think I bumped my nipple on the desk and it really hurts. Daniel Esperanza, don't you touch my naps. I pointed at him and he recoiled with both hands in the air. One eye wide and freckled cheeks bright red in almost an instant. God, did I actually blush like that? I wasn't gonna. He squeaked hoarsely, shoving his hands in my coat pockets to prove his innocence. I'm just saying you're very sensitive in places that I don't usually. Stop. And your mouth is really dry. Did you even drink water today? Alright, you're making this weird. Meanwhile, Finn was propped up against the desk with his fingers squeezing the bridge of his nose, stuck in a shack with the two biggest idiots in the universe. Maybe he had a point about the whole half a brain cell thing. For, for all the things I my dear... The radio crackled again. A red light was coming from the screens, bright and blinding in a dark room. For, for all the things I know.
The clock on the wall was moving again, the minute hand circling the face so quickly that it became a blur. We'll take a cup of kindness yet. Outside of her shack, daylight turned to night, and back again in a matter of seconds. It was like watching time race backwards impossibly fast, every sunrise and sunset burning her eyes. For the, For the sake of all that lies on. A bell was ringing in my ear so loud that it made my skull vibrate and my teeth chatter. I was cold, standing outside in the wind. When my two eyes adjusted, I could see the endless forest up the mountainside. The view was different than what I remembered. Same place, same mountain range, but there were no lights from the village, no concrete, no radio tower. And somewhere in those pine-covered peaks, a thick bank of fog was swirling and quickly spreading down toward the tree line. My heart started pounding. I looked down on my feet and saw buckled shoes and stockings and rickety wood floors beneath me. I was in a high tower made of planks, a massive brass bell ringing in my ear. People were yelling down below, their voices far away but the panic so familiar. Thomas! A man screamed. He was standing in the snow at least 20 feet down from where I stood. His hands cupped over his mouth to yell up in my direction. He wore a raccoon tail hat, a shotgun hanging off his shoulder. I didn't recognize him. I didn't recognize anyone. Ring the bell, you fool. Why did you stop? I looked at my hands, tanned and calloused from rough work. They were still wrapped around a thick piece of rope. I remembered a moment like this, perched on top of the old Pinehaven church, ringing the bell as if my life depended on it. It did then, and it probably did now. I pulled with my entire weight, the brass bell above my head, making a low metallic drum before it finally chimed, the sound carrying for miles and miles. The pain in my ears was impossible to ignore. My arms were burning. My hands felt like they were on fire. Somewhere in the deep and echoing hum, I heard the music on the wind. We too have paddled the stream. The fog was racing closer, tumbling over itself like rolling waves. From morning sun till night. I pulled the rope as hard as I could, the stilts under my feet shaking. My legs were growing weak. My hands were beginning to bleed. The seas between us lowered and swell. My hands slipped and the rope slid out of my grasp, sending me falling to my knees. Sore, bleeding palms were flat against the wood, and the air around me was growing stale and dark. I heard the static from the headset. I heard the buzz of flickering lights up above. A light bulb struggling to come back to life. I saw the familiar floor of our tiny wooden hovel. I inspected my sore palms, seeing that the blood had gone, and then the pain was starting to fade into a memory. Still, my heart was racing out of control. Finn was sitting propped up against the wall, a hand on his chest. Daniel was next to me, lying flat on his back, and panting as if he had run a marathon. I watched him pat at his face, his body making sure that he was back in his own self again. I think we're back home. 
he said between heavy, wheezing breaths. What is going on? This did not happen last year. Remember last year, it was boring and normal and it was great. Yeah, well, things are changing, buddy, Finn said, pushing himself up and cracking his back as he stood. He paused at the moment his eyes settled on the window, standing as still and frozen as a statue. I watched him, waiting for him to blink. Don't move, he whispered. My curiosity got the better of me, craning my neck over the broadcast desk just enough to see through the lookout window. I peered into the cold, snowy night while holding my breath as if waiting for something to jump out and grab me. What I saw was far less violent but far more chilling. Dozens, if not hundreds of deer were standing in the clearing right outside of our shack, shoulder to shoulder and staring directly at us with dark and unblinking eyes. Some of them had extra antlers, others had additional eyes or two noses. Some had human hands instead of hooves at the bottom of their legs. I could hear their strange and haunting bellows, the thump of their steps against the frozen ground. All three of us sat completely still, afraid to move, afraid to blink. The window was clouded by hot breath, the deer huffing and puffing warm fog into the frozen winter air. The harsh glower from their eyes felt like a warning, a threat, made all the more terrifying by their uneasy stillness. They were waiting for something. All at once, we heard a jike and scrape that came from all sides. It was the sound of antlers clacking against the thin wooden walls, dragging along the chipped paint and digging into the pulp. We heard hooves stomping above, the horrible and warped groans of elk. Dust fell from the ceiling in thick clouds, the thin plywood cracking and the bulb above our heads shaking like a spotlight. And we heard the call, a great bellow that shook the whole world. Something was rising above the pines, massive and heavy and adorned with curling antlers. It was the head of that amalgamate beast, severed at the neck and larger than a house, levitating and leaving a trail of blood and sinew beneath the open, steaming wound. Its mouth opened, revealing sharp teeth that went all the way back into its throat. The sound that came out made my bones tremble. One hundred eyes opened to the sky, purple and shining like beacons. It looked at us. Its glow burst through my skull like a white-hot flame the moment one of its eyes met mine. All at once, I wasn't in this world anymore. I wasn't on this earth. I was in a place that I couldn't describe. Between time and space and life and death and everything in between, I was one with it and that thick, black blood was pounding through my veins like the roots of a tree that connected us all. It felt as if I was a part of everyone who had ever been lost to this forest, everyone who had ever made that blood sacrifice. My father, the forest rangers, the sleepwalkers, Jennifer. Her old acquaintance be forgot. I was remembering a night that I had tried to forget. It was New Year's Eve. I was drinking champagne stuck in a crowd of people that I didn't know. Jennifer was dancing with someone else. And then never brought to mind. Ten. Nine. Eight. Time was ticking down and my heart was racing. I kept my eyes in her trying to stick with someone that I knew. 
She looked so pretty in gold. Should, should old acquaintance be forgot? Seven, six, five, four. She spotted me and gave me a huge smile, lifting up her glass. She had just had her braces removed. Her arms reached for me in a hug. For the, for the sake of all Lang Syne. Three, two, one. As the crowd erupted in a cheer, I felt her lips on mine for the briefest of seconds. I didn't have a chance to close my eyes or even kiss her back. I was too surprised. She was drunk and she probably didn't realize who she had kissed. She probably forgot about it the next day. We never spoke of it again. The floor of the shed was hard and cold against my back. The dingy yellow light above our heads was swaying slowly until it stopped moving altogether. I heard that ticking again as simple, rhythmic, and normal. I sat up quickly, blinking my eye in the dim light and struggling to catch my breath. Almost immediately, I turned my gaze to the clock. It was 11.59 again. My legs felt like they had been filled with mashed potatoes, shaking weakly and numbly when I stood. And Daniel was already sitting at the broadcast desk. I handed his forehead as sweat dripped down his face. Then had a hand on his shoulder. I think he got the effects of that light worse than we did. It's counting down again, I said breathlessly, huddling near my co-workers and my friends as time ticked on. Thirty seconds left before midnight. Do you think it'll just keep changing forever? Daniel was squeezing my hand, shaking like a leaf in the wind. Finn was staring forward at the fresh falling snow. It glittered in the dim red light of the radio tower that loomed above. Ten seconds left. The horizon was eerily quiet. The sky was dark and the trees were still. The wind was whistling between the planks of our ramshackle broadcast station. The crows were still perched at the tree line, ruffling their feathers and calling up at the stars in wisps of snowy clouds. Five, four, three, two, one. And for the first time, we saw the minute hand click into place, and our computer monitors followed an instant later. Twelve o'clock, midnight. January 1st, 2023. I let out a breath so big and so tightly held that it burned. The hour was over. We made it to the brand new year, standing in the exact same room where it had all started. My travel mug was still warm on the desk. The pen that I had been tapping against the wood set right where I had left it. Auld Lang Syne, the Guy Lombardo version started playing through the headphones just as it had been set. And when 12.01 appeared on the clock, the three of us finally relaxed our shoulders like three frozen statues that had finally been released from time. Happy New Year, you idiots, Finn said. He gave me a casual side hug first and then ruffled Daniel's fluffy head of hair. Take a breather and then get the heck out of here. Go celebrate, go drink some grape juice or something. Take a nap. Taking a nap sounded great, but easier said than done. I sat down, my hands sliding down my face in exasperation. My heart had been pounding out of control, but now it was slowing to the usual pitter-patter of constant, reasonable anxiety. I looked over at Dan, who stole that far-off look as if his soul had been ripped out of his body. 
I tapped him on the shoulder to get his attention and signed with my hands. Happy New Year. It made him smile, finally. He signed back, picking up his half-empty energy drink and tapping it against the ridge of my travel mug. So, bud, I raised my eyebrows. Did you remember to write down those phone numbers from the raffle? Daniel's smile disappeared and his eyes widened halfway through a sip from his can. He stared off into the distance for a few uneasy seconds, before whispering under his breath. Ah, oh, crap. This is Evelyn from the 104.6 FM Emergency Broadcast Station. And on behalf of myself and the two idiots that I share a brain with, Happy New Year and good luck. I've been talking to the boy next door through my window. His latest messages are freaking me out. Written by Trash Tia. I want to talk to you about the boy next door. I first noticed him when we had arrived here. Mom was moving in all of our boxes and furniture, and I was sitting on one of Mom's boxes labeled Fragile, Downing Ice Cold Lemonade. It wasn't exactly the weather for cold drinks, but I was tired after spending my morning and a half of my afternoon going back and forth with all of our stuff. It was just a glimpse. One of the movers asked me to help him with a box of kitchen equipment. I was struggling to get a proper grip on it, twisting around to shout that I needed help. When I saw him, not much of a person, more of a shadow poking from behind the fence. What I could make out was a tallish figure and mousy hair. I lifted my hand in a greeting, but the guy walked away. I didn't think much of it. Maybe he was shy. Though I was curious about my neighbors, I was expecting them to join the parade of families on our doorstep, harboring every food that you can imagine, but they stayed away. I did know that a family existed next door, however. There was a large wooden fence separating us, so if I really wanted to talk to them, I would either have to grow several feet taller or invest in some stilts. I'm not sure why I was so obsessed with meeting them. I knew that they had kids my age. I could hear them. Whether they were arguing over video games or laughing at something trivial, I could always hear them when I was sitting on our wooden porch or helping mom clean our yard. According to mom, who had heard it from the nice lady across the street, our neighbors were called the Wilders. There was a single mom and her four teenage kids. Huh, I thought. So mystery shadow guy must have been a wilder kid. I was told not to get too excited though. Apparently Mrs. Wilder was very protective over her children and she homeschooled all of them. So there was no chance of me making friends or even getting to know them. On our second day in our new home, Mom told me over breakfast that Mrs. Wilder had sent out a polite notice to the neighborhood that her children were not to be disturbed or talked to, which was crazy. I thought that that was weird, but Mom understood it and, to my annoyance, accepted the woman's notice. 
I was warned not to talk to the Wilder children. And if I did, that was an automatic week grounding, which meant no dinner, no seeing friends after school, and my phone privileges were taken away. According to her, she figured they were just a private family and wanted to accept that. She theorized the kids had been bullied at public school and had to be homeschooled. But I was skeptical. All of them? I had asked her through a mouthful of cereal. Phoebe, Mom sent me a warning look sipping her coffee. What we're going to do is respect Mrs. Wilder's wishes. It's crazy. I muttered into my frosted flakes, only for mom to reach across the table and poke me with the prongs of her fork. Ow! Don't play with your food. I'm not playing with my food. I held up a spoonful of soggy cereal. You just never get the chocolate brand. These taste like sandpaper. We are going to be respectable neighbors, mom said, ignoring me. So, you are not going to speak to those kids. Do you understand? I knew that mom only wanted to abide by the weird rules because she was obsessed with joining the mom's club, or whatever they were called. But it didn't make any sense to me that this woman wasn't letting her own kids have a social life. At a younger age, maybe 11 or 12, I could understand. But 17? That was almost college age. What, was she expecting to coddle them forever? Did she really think these kids were going to stay with her? Seventeen was the age of finding first loves and making mistakes, not staying at home with mommy dearest. Okay, but would you do this to me? I asked her. Would you really lock me up and stop me from going outside and living my life? Mom had been spreading butter on bread. I didn't realize that her mood had drastically changed until she was almost slicing her finger with the knife. You don't know this yet because you are far too young. She lifted her head, her lips curving into a smile. But there is something called a mother's instinct. When our children are born, we are overcome with an almost feral need to protect them from danger. If you look it up, it is present in every creature. Every mother. Our children are worth more than ourselves. We give our own lives to keep them alive. Yeah, you can roll your eyes and say that it's stupid, but I'm sure as soon as you have your own child, you will feel the exact same with them. She nodded at me. I had that with you. I, I still have that with you, Phoebe. No matter how old you get. When you were a baby, I wanted to hold you in my arms every second of every day. I hated it when people wanted to hold you, and you were such a clingy baby always cradled to my chest. As you grew up, I started to understand that you were seeing the world for the first time and that you needed your own time and space. I let you take your first steps on your own. I cried when you said your first word. And when I grabbed your hand and raced down the kindergarten steps for the first time, letting you go was painful. And if I had a choice in the matter, yes, I would keep you in here. I would stop you from going outside and seeing this world. She dropped the knife with a startling metallic clang before picking it back up. Because this planet is a scary place, Phoebe, and as mothers, it is our job to keep our kids safe, even if that means going to the slightest of extremes. 
slightest of extremes, I scoffed, despite knowing that I was being pedantic. They have to fly the nest, that's called growing up. Ignoring her glare, I continued. Yes, I believe in mother's instinct, but at one point you have to look at yourself and realize that you're being ridiculous. 17-year-olds aren't infants. They won't just blindly walk into traffic. They have self-awareness of what is right and wrong. I pointed at myself. You let me drive, right? I got my license. Where was your mother's instinct when I got myself a big girl vehicle that I could have easily had an accident in? Mom curled her lip. Don't push it. Leaning across the table, I fixed her with a smile. See? You trust me, Mom. You let me grow up. That's the difference between you and Mrs. Wilder. Kids have to grow up, no matter what the circumstances are. Just a part of being a human. We all grow up and we leave our parents. I sent her a look, stirring the soggy soup of my cereal. Well, unless you're Mrs. Wilder. Mom finished her coffee and stood up. You don't even know these children. They could be in any stage of development which makes them very different to you. All kids mentally age at different points. She took her plate to the faucet and dumped it in the bowl. Mom washed the dishes when she was angry or stressed, and she was really going to town on our brand new pattern plates. I saw that as a mark of finality. I'm done talking about this, okay? You're not 18 yet, which means you abide by my rules and really, Phoebe. I'm not exactly holding you prisoner. I'm just asking you to be polite and follow a simple rule which isn't that hard. We're a new family and we need to make a good impression, which means no talking to Mrs. Wilder's children. She cleared her throat. Respect our neighbor's wishes or lose your phone. Ducking my head, I continued to stir my cereal into a mushy soup which had quickly become unappetizing. It looked like barf. I pushed it away. You only want me to follow the rules so that you can get into Mrs. Becker's book club and go on Pilates dates with middle-aged Karens. Mom dropped a plate in the sink and the sound of the splash made me flinch slightly. Is that understood? Yes, I said, rolling my eyes. Obviously, I will abide by the streets draconian rule so I can continue scrolling through TikTok. It was sarcasm, but I wasn't sure my mother could detect it. She was so blinded by becoming one with our neighbors. Why was she so obsessed with meeting all the other moms anyway? Was she planning on setting me up on a play date with a three-year-old Evie? I wouldn't put it past her doing that for some brownie points. Good. End of conversation. Mom said, hurrying to get her jacket and bag. I'm late for work and you have an induction to get to. I wanted to argue further because this sounded unfair. The kids were teenagers, right? How were they not arguing against this? It seemed insane that they were going along with what their mother said. But I was aware of significant punishment if I broke this rule. So I begrudgingly agreed. After my induction, I asked around new friends and classmates if anybody knew of the Wilder kids. And they did. But they didn't want to elaborate on what they knew. I heard a lot of rumors with the dead ends. Most of them had involved a father who had walked out on them, 
and their mother going into ultra-protective mode in response. It sounded like these kids were bearing the brunt of a messy divorce. They were complete enigmas. I didn't know anything about them except for their insanely overprotective mother's wicked grip on them. I gave up being curious. Mom was serious about me not speaking to them. She gave me a lecture on respecting the woman's privacy and blah blah blah. I tuned out after like 5 minutes. My attention flicking to an episode of Breaking Bad playing on the lounge TV. The next few weeks were boring. Mom was invited to join Miss Beck's book club so on Mondays at 5pm I made myself scarce. I did exactly what mom said. I ignored the kids next door. My bedroom happened to be facing the room of one of the kids, but their dark blue curtains were always shut. Sometimes it was hard. When I was sitting in the yard reading a book, I could hear them on the other side of the fence. The boys were the most vocal, laughing and teasing each other. There was a point when I had risked it. I jumped to my feet and got halfway across the expanse of grass, standing on the tips of my toes and trying to catch a peek. But mom was calling me inside. I swore she had eyes in the back of her head. Mom always knew when I was outside, when I was near the fence. It wasn't until a month had gone by when I finally got a glimpse of a wilder kid. I had just gotten back from school. I had dumped my backpack on my bed and grabbed my phone, slumping onto my bed to text my friends and mindlessly scroll through social media. I noticed a movement at the corner of my eye, and when I lifted my head, blinking rapidly, those same blue curtains which had shut me out for what felt like so long, they were open, and not just that. I could see a bedroom smothered in personality. I glimpsed a hardwood desk strewn with paper and an expensive laptop, a blue bedspread, a beaten up guitar leaning against light green walls covered in old school movie posters. There were screwed up pieces of paper everywhere. I had to guess that he was some kind of artist. The room was illuminated in the evening dim, a soft warm light bringing the room to life. A knock startled me, and my gaze flicked to the window. There he was, the wilder boy next door. He was my age, maybe even older. This guy looked almost college-aged, which made it increasingly weirder that his mother would insist on babying him at the age of 17. He was cute, the dorky kind of cute. He wore bulky glasses, but was the type to instantly suit pretty much anything. If I could compare him to anyone... It would be the mental image in my head that my younger self had imagined Percy Jackson was when I read the books. The guy looked comfortable in a sweater and jeans, mousy brown hair hanging in warm eyes. There was an inquisitive smile on his lips. I jumped up to open my window to speak to him, but he shook his head, and I quickly remembered his mother's stupid rule which forbid us from talking. So I got creative. Give me a moment. I mouthed. I expected him to ignore me and go back to what he was doing, but the guy straightened up and nodded, arching a brow. He was intrigued. I grabbed an old notebook and a pen and sat on my bed, scribbling a message. I wrote, 
Hello, so you're the kid under house arrest, LMAO. When I held it up, his smile pricked and he laughed, but I couldn't hear it. I could tell that he had a dorky kind of laugh, a nasally one. The guy held up a hand for me to wait and rummaged on his desk. He quickly wrote out a message and held it up with a grin. He looked almost proud of his own message, and I couldn't resist my own smile. I expected him to curse his mother, maybe apologize for the lack of communication. But instead, he simply wrote, Hello, what's your name? Followed by a slightly smudged smiley. After a moment of consideration, mom's words echoing in my mind. I thought, ah, screw it. Phoebe, I said. Yours? It's nice to meet you, Phoebe, he responded, which spanned multiple conversations which took up several of my notepads. We talked about everything from school to his life at home. He had three siblings, Matilda, Freddie, and Isaac. He liked to play the guitar and draw, but he also apparently sucked at both. When I asked what his favorite TV show was, he looked confused for a moment before answering. All of them. Following that odd answer, I asked if he liked marble, and again he did that look again. A look of confusion but I knew that he was trying to make a good impression. What is Marvel? He wrote back, this time his handwriting in a bubbly font. I could almost call his writing calligraphy. It practically danced off of the page. The Wilder boy's strange answers made me wonder if this kid had been homeschooled his whole life. He seemed way too polite. I mean, kids were polite, sure. There was a certain amount of respect that you had to pay to your elders and parents. But looking at this kid, I wasn't even sure that he knew what a meme was, or even the concept of a joke. He had no idea about one of the biggest movie franchises in the world, and his favorite celebrity was apparently all of them. In fact, he had answered all of them to several of my questions. His messages reminded me of my grandma's. Still though, he was good company though I made it a mission to convert him into a normal teenager. I had to guess due to constantly being home and around the same people, the kid had zero social skills. I asked him what his favorite movie was out of the posters on the wall. He had Kill Bill, Reservoir Dogs, and Fight Club. Again, he looked confused. His head cocked to the side and I had to physically point to them behind him. All of them... He wrote back with a smiley face. Dang, this kid needed to see a movie which wasn't some educational crap. I bet his mother had turned him into a perfect member of society. What have you seen? I couldn't help asking him. Like movies, TV shows, and do you play video games? He shook his head before scribbling back. What is that? Holy crap, this kid was completely cut off from the outside world. I was already mentally thinking of plans to get him out of the house into a party, or something like that. From the look on this kid's face, a slightly blank if not completely innocent smile, he needed time away from home, away from his overprotective mother's wicked grasp. After a while, I realized that he never had told me his name. I didn't notice time go by, 
almost three hours and I had spent most of it lecturing him on movies and TV shows that he really should have known. I guess Mrs. Wilder didn't let him watch the TV. My gaze flicked to his laptop and I wouldn't have been surprised if she had blocked out all social media. My notepad was full of scribbles and doodles and an attempt at copying his handwriting style. The sky was blooming into twilight outside, thick orange and cotton candy pink streaking the horizon. I've always loved a pre-twilight sky. What's your name? I wrote in marker pen before holding up my notepad. I was running out of paper and I could hear my mom downstairs preparing dinner. And I can tell from his diminishing smile that Mrs. Wilder was probably shouting for him to go downstairs. He didn't reply for a while. I watched him put the pad down before heading over to his desk and cleaning up the paper. Every trace that we had been talking and dumping each response he had given in the trash. Before he slumped onto his bed, he wrote something down in several strokes before holding it up for me to see. Casper, he had written. My name is Casper Wilder. For a moment, his expression changed completely. He glanced at the door before frowning at the pad of paper in his lap. It looked like he had wanted to write more before twisting around, his eyes widening. Someone was coming. I could tell by the look on his face, the knot between his brows. Casper gathered everything that he had been using to write to me. Pens and pencils, scraps of paper, and the backs of movie posters. And he shoved them under his bed. And then he grabbed the curtains and pulled them closed, blocking me out once again. I thought that he would come back, but after standing like an idiot with an odd feeling in my gut, frowning at his curtains, I realized that he was finished talking to me for the night. What I expected was that to be it. I didn't think that he would come back. The next morning, however, he was back at his window, smiling at me through a mouthful of toothpaste. He was still in his pajamas, unbrushed curls falling in sleepy eyes. He looked strange without his glasses, like his face was too bare. The more I took him in, though, something was different. Though I couldn't make it out, but it hit me then. Casper wasn't moving, staying in the same position. The night before, he had gone to and from his bed, hurrying around to grab equipment to write with. But now he was stood, looking more shadow than human. I was quick to die from my notepad, but Casper was already holding up his own greeting with a grin. Good morning, Phoebe. How are you feeling today? Tired. I wrote back, my writing barely comprehensible. Do you have school? Yes. He responded with an excited smile. I'm so excited to learn. Do you have a favorite class? I laughed at that. And after looking confused, he copied my laugh, which made me laugh harder. None of them. I scribbled back. School is boring. Casper shrugged. I like it. I have a great tutor. Really? This time, I drew an attempt at a rolling eyes emoji. You shouldn't be excited for school, you weirdo. He curled his lip. You're the weirdo, he wrote back. Casper paused, chewing on the lid of his pen before writing. 
What's a weirdo? You're kidding me. This time with too much vigor, I pointed to him with a laugh. You, you are the weirdo. We talked as I got ready for school, gathering all of my books and homework. I was stuffing my gym clothes in my bag when I noticed something was on the ground behind Casper. Looking closer, it looked like a cord, like a long cable sort of thing. I thought that it was for a gaming console, but then I remembered that he had no idea what a video game was. I didn't question what it was for a while. We talked every night about everything and nothing. I told Casper about school and friends, filling up every piece of paper that we had in the house, and he told me about his siblings. They were all the same age, and they all enjoyed school. His brother was a piano prodigy, while his sister's strongest subjects were math. Casper told me that he felt like the odd one out, being the artist of the family. And I quickly told him that creativity was the best part of a person. He showed me his drawings and to my confusion and slight disgust. They were all of his mother. I mean, they were good, sure. His skills were Ivy League worthy. Perfect shading. Everything about the drawings were perfect. But the fact that his muse was his mother... It put a weird taste in my mouth. He showed me each drawing, his smile widening with excitement, while I nodded and pretended to be impressed. Well, I was. It became startlingly obvious that Casper didn't have a choice on who he drew. He didn't draw fruit or landscapes or even the sky. We live in a picturesque town, the perfect canvas for an artist. However, Mrs. Wilder was the center of every single drawing and painting, ink blot, even with different styles and angles. She was always there. And Casper Wilder saw no wrong in it. He saw absolutely nothing wrong in this woman taking control of every aspect of his life. His social life, his friends, education, and hobbies. I have expected him to grab his guitar and start singing about her through the glass. I couldn't take it anymore. It was driving me crazy. We continued to talk through writing to each other, but soon enough, the only subject was his mother. Casper asked me if I could rate a drawing that he was working on. It was of her. I mean, of course it was. I ignored him, getting to my feet and holding up the sign that I had written weeks before. But I was too scared to show him. I didn't want to ruin our friendship, but I had to know. I had to know several things which had been keeping me up all night. Why are you okay with your mother controlling your life? I asked in bold letters. And below that. Also, I've been wondering this for a while. But what is that thing behind you? The thing behind him was at the center of my thoughts. I had worked out that it wasn't a cord for the TV or a games console, not even a laptop or for his guitar, and not to mention it was always there, morning and evening, even at night when I spied him getting ready for bed. This thing was always on the floor, snaked across his bed. Sometimes it was even wrapped up on his desk. I couldn't understand the length of it. I asked friends at school and even the internet. But my descriptions uh, didn't do it justice. A long silver cord-like thing which didn't have an end. 
and Casper blinked at my message before he ducked his head and started writing before holding up his response. I love my mom, he said, doodling a little heart. She doesn't control my life. I like that she's in it. Below that, a follow-up message which twisted my gut. What do you mean? I don't see anything, Phoebe. Tapping my pad with my pen, I struggled to think of a response. There was no way that he couldn't see this thing. It was pretty hard to miss. Instead of writing, I pointed behind him. That, I mouthed, using my lips for the first time. It felt good to actually talk to him, even if a window of glass had separated us. What? His handwriting was slipping slightly, and I noticed that his hands were visibly shaking. What can you see, Phoebe? This time he stood up. I noticed that something had changed in him, the notepad slipping off his knee. Casper turned around, scanning the room. Before his eyes, I finally found the cord thing. His smile seemed to dampen, eyes going wide, fists clenching. Casper? I hurriedly wrote when he didn't move for a while. His gaze was glued to the cord. I watched his eye follow it around the room before his hand slowly raised, trembling fingers moving to his neck and then the back of his head. Was there an insect? That's what I thought. It must have been a spider or some kind of bug which had startled him. I could only describe his expression as close to catatonic. He stood up but then quickly slumped back down, but not like it was his choice as if he was being dragged back down by an unseen force. Like one minute, I was looking at Casper Wilder, and then I was seeing a stranger, a completely different person take over a rapidly appalling phase. Something snapped inside my gut and when he had moved forward suddenly, his arms lunging out to close the curtains. But that wasn't the end of what I saw. The boy had unknowingly left a splinter, a tiny gap allowing me to glimpse. I expected him to react to whatever had freaked him out, but instead he simply flopped back onto his bed. This time, I noticed the silver cord jolt with his movement. He was already asleep, his eyes closed. I watched him, my heart diving into my throat. There was no way that he just fell asleep like that. It was too fast. Mrs. Wilder came into his room soon after, but I only got a glimpse of her because she was already striding over to the window. I ducked behind my bed, panic creeping up my spine. I expected the woman to start yelling at me through the window, but instead, she simply pulled the curtains properly shut. Mrs. Wilder definitely saw me, and if she didn't, Casper's messages to me were still piled on his bedsheets. I was left completely in the dark then. I stood and pressed my face against the window, fully aware that I was addicted to the mystery surrounding my neighbor. My mind began to wander to uncertain and scary places. What exactly was Casper's mother doing to him behind the curtain? I wanted to believe that she was simply tucking him in and saying goodnight, but the strange cord-like thing on the ground and how he had reacted to noticing it 
for what seemed like the first time. His change in expression, it was like a different person had taken over him, and that person was scared, catatonic. I refused to believe that Mrs. Wilder was innocent. I waited for him to draw his curtains again, but he didn't. Casper's window stayed completely blocked for days. I stopped hearing his siblings in the yard, and after days of nothing, Mom reiterated her warning to me over dinner. No communication with the Wilder children, she told me, which includes notes and letters. Busted. So Mrs. Wilder knew that we were talking. I wondered if she was punishing her son for breaking the rules, and that's why he had been MIA for the last few days. There's something wrong with Casper. I had worked up the courage to tell Mom. The boy next door. I think Mrs. Wilder is hurting him. Hurting him? Yeah, like, I frowned. I think she can make him go to sleep when she wants. I pulled a face. Like hypnotism or maybe even drugs. Mm-hmm. Drugs, Mom, I said. Mrs. Wilder is drugging her 17-year-old son. No, oh, that's nice, honey. Are you even listening to me? I leaned across the table, stabbing the page of her book. Mom, Casper Wilder is a total blank slate. I've told you a thousand times she's protecting them, she hummed. You've just seen far too many crime dramas and your generation has been poisoned by the likes of crime entertainment. Finding what you think is your own mystery must be fun. But you're reaching, baby. Reaching? I prodded my own temple. I'm sorry, were you not listening to me when I told you that he doesn't even know what a video game is? Mom was acting weird. Usually, she would talk about school with me, or at least try to engage in conversation. But she was too busy reading the book that Mrs. Becker had recommended her. It was like talking to a brick. You're being ridiculous, Phoebe. She turned over a page with a sigh. I've spoken to his mother. She's a lovely woman. We're having lunch next week. I met her in the grocery store. What a coincidence. I shot her a look over my phone. I was looking up helplines. You're suddenly best friends with the neighborhood witch when I'm caught talking to her son. Dropping my phone for emphasis, I stood up. If you would just listen to me. That's enough. Mom cut me off. She finished her coffee, grabbing her jacket from where it was slung over her chair. Stay out of trouble, okay? I'm heading back to work. I've left cash if you want to order a pizza. You have other interests, alright. Please, leave Mrs. Wilder alone. This obsession that you have with her kids is unhealthy. Why don't you just stick to fiction, okay? Yeah, no. As soon as she was gone, I sprinted to my room to see if Casper's curtains were open. To my dismay, though, they weren't. Frustrated, I yanked mine shut too. Slumping onto my bed, I continued looking up helplines. I got bored soon after and started googling cords and wires which fit the description of what I had seen. There was a match, though it was on a weird medical website which looked like it had been made in 2005. The interface was outdated and according to the description, it was some kind of clamping device. There were a lot of words that I didn't know and after further googling, I was getting increasingly more confused. 
until my gaze flicked to a section at the bottom of the page. According to whoever wrote it, the court in question was experimental. There weren't many in circulation, but it was mainly used in medical centers, such as specialist surgeries and hospitals. When I scrolled down, there is a diagram which showed a long cord-like thing labeled as the body and a sharp-looking needle. Something warm crept up my throat and I sat up, frowning at the screen. Was that it? Was that thing the end? And what did this thing even connect to? A sudden thud made me almost jump out of my skin. I slid off my bed. Another one. It was coming from my window. My curtains were still shut, blowing in the slight breeze. Slowly I made my way over, my spine tingling. Three more thuds. The first thing that I saw was red. Bright, intense scarlet splattering the Wilder Boy's window. And then I glimpsed Casper. He was slamming his face into the glass over and over again, his already bleeding nose exploding with more red. But it wasn't the boy that I knew. This kid that I had gotten to know over the last few months. No, this kid was a mess of torn up clothes, bruises, yellow in his eyes and scratches sliced into his flesh. My first thought was his mom. She must have done this to him. But then my gaze was finding his bloody nails and claw marks on his arms and cheeks. There was something white wrapped around his head. A bandage. I could glimpse red leaking through, smudging clinical white and pooling down his temples in sharp rivulets. Casper's eyes were an enigma in themselves, a mixture of fear and confusion, an almost feral look of anger and frustration. But the twitch in his lip and between his brow was evident that something was fighting that. Emotions and feelings that he wasn't feeling himself. It was like looking at two different guys. One was Casper, the artist who lived next door, who ended every message with a smiley. While this twisted other self, a self which was broken out and was feral in his expression, was a whole other person. I started to realize the more that I looked at him, at the mess of flesh and blood caught between his nails, and his trembling hands every so often creeping to the back of his skull before jolting and coming back to curl into fists, battering the window, he had clawed into his own head. Immediately, I reached for my phone, but he already knew what I was going to do. No, he mouthed, shaking his head. So I grabbed my notepad. I could barely write. What's going on? I held up my pad. Are you okay? You're bleeding. Instead of using a pen and paper, a Casper squinted, blinking rapidly. His handwriting was different, a manic scrawl, as he wrote in the explosion of blood on the window. When he twisted around, his gaze going to the door, the breath caught in my throat. Someone was yelling his name. I could tell by his reaction, his bloodied fingers clotted his face and hair at bald patches and rugged stitches lining his scalp and the back of his skull. They kept going, a narrow line of stitches all the way back down his neck and presumably his spine. My thoughts flashed back to the equipment that I had been looking up. This kind of thing was designed to bury into the brain and spinal cord. I looked for it, but the thing was nowhere to be seen on him. It was no longer on the floor. 
Casper struggled to write coherently. I noticed that he kept swearing, his fingers smudging the words that he was trying to write. This was more like it, I thought. This was the kind of boy that I expected to be the kid next door. Crap. He shook his head. His movements erratic as one hand went to the back of his head and came back slick with a glistening red. No, no, no. He slammed his fists into the window in frustration. But I was already seeing his message start to blossom and make sense. Who? Casper was crying. I could see that he could barely breathe, struggling to inhale, swiping at his eyes with a smudge to fist. Am. I. I started to back away, but he continued. When he had finished, he wrote it again and again, growing more and more fraught. I jumped when he had slammed his head into the glass of the window again. At first, a part of me thought he was using his blood for paint, so he was intentionally doing this to himself to draw more. But his words spelled it out for me in black and white. Who am I? He wrote. Who am I? Who am I? This time I could barely even read my own handwriting. I held up a scrap of paper. Did your mom do this to you? I gestured to the bandage on his head and he stumbled back, wild eyes searching for something to write with. That woman, he scribbled in block capitals. That woman is not my mom. He wrote before he dropped to his knees. He was still writing but failing to show me. I don't know who I am. He wrote the same thing 12 times before tearing up the paper and burying his head in his lap. I gave up writing messages. Casper, I shouted. And then I threw a rock at his window when he lifted his head, blinking rapidly, gesturing for him to open up his window. He struggled with the latch for a moment before pulling it open. I stuck my head out of my own window, cold air hitting me in the face. I'm going to help you. I managed to choke out. Hold on, okay? Casper clawed at his face. Help me. His voice was a sharp hiss. Please help me. I don't know who I... His fingernails ripped into the flesh of his cheeks, but he barely seemed to feel it to be phased. They kept going, digging into layer after layer. I don't know who I am. He jumped up suddenly, trashing his desk and throwing his laptop against the wall. He reminded me of a child having a tantrum. In this case, though, it was more than acting out. I was sure that Casper Wilder didn't exist. I don't know who I am. I don't... I don't know who I am. His eyes found mine, and I could have sworn that I saw something there, buried deep, deep inside his pupil. He blinked and it was gone. You need to tell me what she's done to you, I said stiffly. Tell me what she's done to your head. And Casper was only growing progressively more frenzied, animalistic. He came back to the window, slamming his fists into it, and then his head again and again. It was like he was trying to knock himself out. Help me. I can't remember. I can't remember who I am. I just know. I know her. His lips suddenly twisted into a startling grin. Mom, he whispered, his expression softening. My mom. His gaze flicked to the desk. She won't like that. I've, I've made a mess. Your mom did this, I gritted out. I'm calling the cops. His expression was scaring me. 
Whatever was in his eye was scaring me, but this boy needed help. He needed to be taken out of that house. No, Casper sobered up. No, my mom, my mommy said, she said no police. My eyes widened suddenly, seemingly noticing the mess of the window for the first time. Oh no, Casper stumbled back. I should, I should clean this before my mom sees what mess I made. His door opened and another head poked through. Another guy. I figured that it was one of his brothers, Freddy or Isaac. He too had a bandage wrapped around his head. His brother's eyes found the blood splatters and then me. Like his mother, he strode over to the window, shutting the curtains. But I could still hear it. A mechanical whirring noise, followed by Casper's sharp breath and the sickly crunch of metal protruding through blood and bone. And that was it. Mom! I yelled. I had heard her come back earlier and she must have finished work early today. I stumbled downstairs to tell her to call the cops, but a shadow was already looming behind the corner. Before I knew what was happening, a wet rag stinking a pool cleaner was being pressed over my mouth and nose. I don't remember passing out. When I woke up, I was lying on my mom's couch. It was dark outside, but the curtains were open. My foggy thoughts, drunken slithers of moon poking from between the clouds before registering that I wasn't alone. Sitting up, my stomach galloped. There was no sign of mom, but I recognized each of the faces surrounding me. Mrs. Becker was sitting with her legs crossed, delicately sipping from a cup, and next to her wearing a smug smile was Mrs. Wilder. She wasn't looking at me, Instead, her eyes were lovingly glued to something which had been built over Mom's coffee table. It was made completely out of paper. The scraps of paper that I had been using to talk to her son. Though they weren't just my messages. I glimpsed Casper's handwriting too. It was a house. I was staring at a perfect paper rendition of the Wilder house. And next to it stood four little paper dolls. There were no faces and no expressions, just four dolls, two boys and two girls, though in her lap were more. Mrs. Wilder's nimble fingers were working to make more of them. They filled her lap, differing in sizes. Phoebe, is it? Her voice was smooth like chocolate, and I could almost mistake it for kindness. I nodded, my heart in my throat. I was watching her create another doll. She folded a piece of paper in half and cut it in two and started to fold sections, bringing the doll form to life. This one, unlike the other, did have attention put into it. She had even added the birthmark on my right temple, following that, coloring in my dark blonde hair, and finishing with my jean jacket. Mrs. Wilder didn't have to spell it out for me. When she got to the doll's head, she shocked me by tearing it off and then she ripped off its arms and legs, tearing its torso in half. Mrs. Wilder straightened up. Phoebe, are you aware of a mother's instincts? I couldn't reply. Instead, I was staring at the paper doll that she had set alight. I watched a smoldering orange rip into it before she could put the fire out, dropping the blackened paper doll on the carpet. 
For just a brief second, I could have sworn the hem of my jacket had also caught a light. Just a single flash of orange. But maybe I was seeing things. I was pregnant with four beautiful children. As soon as I found out, I had already named them. Her smile was dreamy, melancholic. Freddy. My little Freddy. He kicked quite a lot. Oh, and Matilda. She and her twin were quite the pair, I must say. Swiftly draining me of my energy, so I had to take medication. And finally, Casper. Named after my favorite movie. I loved him with all my heart. He was my little fighter. She quickly lost her smile, her gaze flicking to me. I hope you understand that if you talk to, or even breathe the same air as my children again, I will rip you apart too. Mrs. Wilder never raised her voice, and she didn't need to. I was terrified of her. She held up my doll for emphasis before throwing it into the paper dollhouse. Or perhaps you could become another daughter of mine. Hmm. I couldn't move. My body paralyzed when she leaned over me, cruel eyes drinking me in. Maybe not. I only take the dead or dying. <sighs> it's not a hard task, Phoebe. Keep away from my children, and I will keep away from you. The two of them left after that, leaving me unable to move, to breathe. They took the dollhouse, all of the paper, even my own doll. Casper has been unreachable since. Mom has hardly been at home, and I'm starting to lose my mind. I don't know what to do. I don't know who or what Mrs. Wilder is, but I'm afraid she's going to keep adding to her collection. Whoever those kids are, they are not hers. I think she's taken them. She's using them as canvases, dolls for what she's lost. Am I next? Thank you for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.